0: Amen, yeah. all right, well are you awake now, are you energized, yeah, all right, good, good, because Jude's going to hit us hard, um, and this section of scripture this morning, uh, Jude is pretty direct, um, in fact, I think what Jude is saying, if like, if you're sitting down and just kind of hearing it, is the tone would be like, Man, this is so urgent, and it can be so misleading at times. People can run with it any direction they want. So let me just be bluntly clear and tell you. That's kind of what Jude is doing walking through uh, this section of Scripture we're going to look at today. Now, we're still in chapter 1. Why? There's only one chapter of Jude. Very good. So, all right. Uh, excellent. Um and these, these verses, though, I mean, just significantly powerful about, let me re- give you the context again, what is happening in the church at the time. And so as Jude is writing, what he's saying is, hey, I need to give a little bit of commentary and advice and even, you know, a little punch to what's happening within the church among believers uh, at the time. So he's not giving a commentary on the world. This isn't what is our world coming to. I can't believe these things are happening, you know, out there. This is like this is happening among the believers, and so that's who he's writing uh, to, and that's how he's addressing this. Doesn't come as a shock to us. Paul writes many, many times to believers, he he encourages them, he pushes them, he challenges them. Uh, We find that uh, there. John actually comes back and he's talking to believers when he challenges them, on on, especially in first John, we find that. And so it would make sense that Jude would pick up on this theme. Now, we said the parallel is pretty strong to second Peter, in fact, these probably used each other's material or might have been even talking to the same audience we're not quite sure um, but we see very distinct parallels to especially the second letter of peter in here we'll actually get to one of those passages in just a moment Judas giving some critique he's giving some push then we're going to find at the end he's give some encouragement Uh, as well and so let's just jump right into it Uh, if you have your Bible take a look at it we're in Jude starting in uh, verse 5 and working through it Uh, if you didn't bring your your book Bible here please at least follow on your phone and get on that way or your tablet that way at home Uh, follow along as well instead of just uh, reading it on the bottom of of your screen uh, engage with the scripture here the book of Jude verse 5 Although you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one, I'm going to just pause for just a second. This is what he's doing. He's saying, look, remember last week, I wanted to write to you about this. This is kind of my go-to passionate topic, but I felt like I needed to write to you about this because this was the urgent need and the urgent issue going on in the church. And then he shows, hey, there's people that have secretly kind of snuck their way in, and they have an agenda. They are in here specifically to distort the gospel. They want to first change the beliefs so that they can justify anything they want to do. And the second thing they want to do is let you know that Jesus is just one of many ways. Those were the two things that were being infiltrated. I told you last week, I don't think it works that way in the sense of a person doesn't come in with that kind of agenda, maybe it happens in some places, but in general, it is these thoughts find their way in, and if we're not careful, it's you and I that bring them into the church. So that's how we ended last week's sermon. So what he said this week here is he's saying, um, now let me help you go back through your history. Let me help you see how this has actually happened in the past. And I want to talk to you about these groups of people that God has actually, he's already spoken against these groups, that these are not beneficial to the faith. So that's why he starts this with, hey, I know you already know this. Listen, I know you know, but let me remind you. Parents, you know that line, right? You sit your kids down. Listen, I I know you already know this. You have to say that as a parent, right? Because what's the first response from your kid? I know, I know, I know you already know this. Kind of tells them, I don't want to hear the I know line, right? And then you go into, but you need to or you need not to. Or remember last time you did this, it led to, you know, and you go into your story or what you're talking about. That's all Judah's doing here. It's the same exact thing. Hey, I already know you know this, but I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. Verse 6, and the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains of judgment on the great day. Now, has he, has he gotten serious pretty fast in these two verses? Yes. It, not that he wasn't serious in verses 1 through 4, but it was an overview. It was kind of, hey, there's things going on in the church, you know. It'd be like me saying, hey, you know, this is great. We're not perfect. We got issues, but, you know, this is a great place. That's an overview. He's not overviewing right now. He's he's getting a little a little stronger, a little more direct. All right, verse 7. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave them up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So Judah's coming pretty direct on this. Um, and really what he's doing is this. He is speaking about three different kind of things that were going on, even in the church in their time, and he's basically saying this, listen, there is such a thing, it's a word we, we don't like using. In fact, um, because the word maybe has been abused in the church world, uh, the pendulum has swung so far that we're, we don't like using it at all, um, unless we're saying don't do this. You know what the word is? The word is judgment, that that is what Jude is actually doing, he is actually kind of Coming And he's pronouncing some judgment on these, these issues, these things he's talking about here. He's already claimed them that, hey, they're not good, they're wrong. But there's two different kind of words for judgment that we find in the New Testament. Uh, we find a word that means sentence after persecution. That would be judgment. Like, you know, you, they, they basically said to you, hey, you're guilty. And because of that, I am sentencing you to five years in prison. You have been condemned or you have been judged five years in prison. So, so we get that. We actually, that actually shows up. But then we also get this understanding of the word judgment used as a, th- a thing to declare something wrong. When you declare it as wrong, you've placed judgment. That's the one we don't like very much in our day and age. Like if I come over and, you know, to Patrick and say, Patrick, you need to stop doing this, right? What would be a knee-jerk response back based on our culture? Don't judge me. Yeah, don't judge me because I've declared something wrong, right? So, but we actually find in the New Testament, and you can look at these passages if you want, we just don't have time to work through them in a short period. Look at all the times this shows up where believers in Christ are actually called to bring this type of judgment upon each other. Now, here's the problem. We often like to bring this judgment on others. We don't like to bring it on ourselves, or we don't like other people bring it on ourselves. So we've just shied away from the word all around. But we're actually called as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ to speak into each other to say, "Hey, you know, hey, buddy, that's wrong. You know, as believers, that's wrong. We shouldn't do that. You know, this brings destruction. Here's why, and and that type of thing." Now, a good relationship is better than just declaring the words. But that's where we see that Jude is going. We saw this last week where Jude is actually saying, this was declared in advance as wrong. And so this is the kind of word he's picking up on. So he's actually bringing these words of, call it divine judgment, right? This is, this is okay. This is not this abuse use of this word or this thing we've tried to shy away from. This is something that's divine, and so he gives really three examples of the way I want to break it down in these next three verses of this divine judgment. Now, here's what you're going to see. These were issues because he, remember he said, hey, you've already know, you already know this. But he's issues that showed up in the past in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible. There's issues that he's paralleling those to what's happening in the church at that time among the believers when Jude is writing this. And I don't think we have to stretch our imagination today too much to see parallels in how these things in different ways infiltrate the church even today. So let's just jump into it. First thing, three examples of divine judgment that we find. Here's the first example. It's to those who do not believe, who don't believe. Now, I just said he's talking to believers, right? He's talking to Jewish Christians most likely. Why? Because he just went through this history of stuff in the Old Testament, right? So he's most likely talking to Jewish converts, not Gentile converts. Gentiles wouldn't be as knowledgeable about those things, but he walks through this, right? So if he's talking to believers, why would the first one be to those who do not believe? Well, let's just take a look at that verse again. I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, But later destroyed those who did not believe. Now, what's he talking about? You might know the story, but let me bring you up to par. If you don't, there was a a time where the Israelites, the people of God, prospered in number. It was great, but then uh, the Egyptians, especially the the Pharaoh, decided, "Hey, they're getting kind of numerous, and they could overpower us. So let's make them slaves." Now, last week we talked about the topic, the the issue of bond servant. Jude calls himself a bond servant. That phrase actually meant to choose to put yourself in servitude. Like we say, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. That's not what this Old Testament story is. This is straight up slavery for labor here. Oppression here because fear that they might rise up. And so that's what we find this story would happen. God hears the cries of his people. Uh, I'm giving you the overview, but if you'd like to look at it, just jump into Exodus chapter 3 and start reading. You can read through Exodus Exodus and get most of this deliverance. But if you want to hear the whole story all the way to the promised land, then read all the way to uh, the first couple chapters of the book of Joshua. And you just read it all. Now, there's a lot of law stuff in there, so it can get bogged down, but that will give you the whole story. The overview continues that God heard the cry of his people through Moses And Moses went to be a deliverer to his people. You remember the ten plagues were part of that. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Eventually, Pharaoh's like, would you just get out of here? And the people all were allowed to go. Of course, Pharaoh changed his mind quick and started following. We have the great Red Sea story, the parting of the Red Sea. People of God go across. Pharaoh and his armies, they take a swim. Uh, didn't, Didn't work out well for them. And now the people of God have been delivered. They are in what we refer to often as the wilderness, but they're on their way to what God has declared to them is the promised land. They enter that promised land in the book of Joshua. You might go, well, what took so long? That's a lot of of books of the Bible, uh, a lot of story before they actually got there. Well, you might know the story. They got into the wilderness, and they immediately started grumbling about things. They immediately started to say things like, you know, man, I wish we had some food around this place. You know, you took us all the way out here, and we don't have any food? God provides food, right? Manna from heaven. Do you remember? Or You know that phrase? That actually comes from the Bible if you weren't familiar with that. God keeps providing these things, and the people are just like, oh, man, this is so terrible out here. They get to where they could go into the promised land, and, they're, and God says, hey, here's what you do. Go, go take it. I'm paraphrasing down to a, a small a level. Read the story, and you get the fullness of it. And they basically says, no, we can't do that, you know? Where We're scared or, you know, it's not possible or what, however they said it. And so what happened? God basically said to that group, look, you're never going in the promised land. You're going to wander the wilderness for the rest of your life and you'll die in the wilderness. It'll be your kids and grandkids that move on into the promised land. And that's what we get at the beginning of the book of Joshua. Now, think about the context of that story and what Jude is saying now. When this, this divine judgment of to those who do not believe, it is, he is basically saying this. It's a reminder to the people he's talking to, plus it's a reminder to you today that God delivers us from our former life. That's what he's saying. God will deliver you. Like some of you, I know your story. You've shared it with me, and you have been delivered from that story. No doubt about it. You were delivered. You have this amazing testimony story. Some of you are like, you you forget sometimes. You're like, well, I don't have the, I was, you know, six years alcoholic and, you know, my family all left and I crashed the car and the dog left and all this, you know, that you, and you don't think you have a story. Listen, anytime you say there was a time in my life where I kind of rejected God, was not into God and his ways at all. And then you have a time where you said, I want to declare, I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. God delivered you out of your former life. You don't have to have a testimony that you think, you know, uh, uh, would be the right one around the campfire, youth camp. You just simply say, I became a follower of Jesus Christ, and he delivered you from that former life. That's a reminder to the people Jude is talking to, that God is a deliverer. And it's a reminder to you today to always look at that, that he's delivered you. The other reminder is this, is that he offers new life. That he didn't just deliver them, but he then said, I have a promised land for you to go to. And you get to dwell in the promised land. You know, milk and honey, all of that kind of stuff. I realize, you know, we, we love packaged food now. So just the idea of just milk and honey, you're like, eh, hmm, you, know, you, know, we, you know, whatever. But ramp it up to whatever you think it is, you know. That's what he's offering them. New life. Great life. In fact, most of you, I, I know you've heard it. From a pulpit or somebody sharing with you, we sing about it in our songs about this new life in Jesus Christ, right? But you got to remember one thing. Here's the warning, and this is what Jude is saying, that we cannot live in the middle. Can't live in the middle. That there is deliverance. God will deliver you from your former life, and there is new life. There is promised land. There's milk and honey, right? All right, milk and honey does not mean no hardships, all right? Anybody who's a Christian, you understand that, all right? But there is new life in Christ here, but he says we can't live in the middle. At best, the middle is a transition space we all go through. As we're transitioning, God delivers us. And we're understanding who God is, what he's about, and we're learning and growing. And it's almost like we grow into this, this new life, this fullness of life. It, it, there's surrender that happens in the middle where we give up things, where we say, oh, you know, I see this new way in Christ. I understand. I surrender that. I give that over to you. I sacrifice that. And this new life is part of that. Here's a problem. It's, the middle, at best, is a transition place. It's not a dwelling And for many of us, we have made the middle a dwelling place. We talk about deliverance. We talk about our testimony the day we came to know Jesus Christ. But God is pushing us and wanting to transform us and make us into something in this new life. And we're content just kind of hanging out in the middle. I don't want to surrender that. I don't want to give up that. I don't want to sacrifice that. And so we do what we talked about with the two chair, the second chair Christian. We're just kind of juggling saying God is number one. He delivered me. But, you know, I got something pretty good going on here on my own, so I can't usher in the fullness of new life. Jude is talking about this, and he actually says, he's pretty strong. He says, but later destroyed those who did not believe. Destroyed. Why? Because that is what unbelief does. Our unbelief destroys God's gift of new life. That's what it does. So if you're hanging on to the, I've been delivered, it's great. The wonderful testimony. But you're not receiving this gift of new life and what it has to offer. It actually destroys, destroys there. So Jude is reminding them of that. What is the unbelief they had? Hey, go into this promised land. You know, you're going to have to take the land. You know, I'll be with you. No, we can't do that. That's, that's scary. There are things that God will be telling you to as well. Hey, surrender that. Give that up. Change that. Quit that habit, you know. Forgive this person. Don't here, there, and there. You keep the list going. You know it. And we say, oh, I don't know. It's a little scary. I kind of like my own way better. Unbelief will kill that new life. Here's the second thing he's saying. Divine judgment, right? He says, to those who sin in key positions of authority. Now, he's talking to the church here, right? So he's not saying, oh, these, these idiot politicians we have in our nation. You know, making this decision. You know, I wish we could just return to Christian values. I just kind of expect we're not going to have that outside, right, the doors of the church. I would hope, I hope on those who claim Christ that they would do that, right? That's not who he's talking to, though. Don't bring in different contexts, you know, something else. He is talking about the church, and he's saying to believers, listen, some of you are in authority positions, and you have to take sin seriously. He gives an example here. Take a look at the, the passage, verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting change of judgment on the great day. Now, he's talking about sin. Take a look at the parallel in 2 Peter chapter 2. I'll read it to you. You don't have it in your notes. Um, but if you have your Bible, you can flip. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if, God, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned but sent them where to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons he held for judgment. I mean, that—that that is God being serious, right? These angels were in places of authority, significant roles in the kingdom. But because of their, their sin, we know their sin was rejection of God. We know that here, right? He cast them down, cast them out, had to deal with them. And we like to say, well, everyone sins, and you'd be right. Everyone stumbles, and you'd be right. Everyone falls, and you'd be right, myself included, this week. You know, we all do this. The underlying understanding of this is unrepentant sin. This unrepentant, just saying, this is, this is how I'm going to be. Now, we know we don't stand up and say, in the church, we just say, hey, this time i have lived. deal with it, church. We know. We don't speak that way, but we live out that. And that is what Jude is speaking against here as well. I mean, think about it. I'm your pastor, right? If 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 I had unrepentant sin where I stood in front of you and just said, listen, you people, just deal with it, okay? You know, I'm your leader. I know better, right? I know better than you. You know, I'm smarter than you. I've read the Bible more, so just deal with it. Would you tolerate that from your leader? You better not. You better not. That is what Jude is getting at here. He's actually saying, like, in the church, right? In, among believers, even among believers, there are believers, people in authority positions that are buying into these, these belief systems or these uh, manipulations that we talked about last week of the belief system. There are people that are distorting the grace. There's people that are claiming Jesus isn't the only way. Even among leaders, it's happening. And Jude say, this, this can't be. Here's a couple of reminders in this Uh, Section One is reminder that God offers significant roles. Why did I put that in there? Because I think for some of you, you know, you you, you have this mentality that, you know, the the pastor, he's the lead role. He goes to seminary and gets his training. And he probably brings a few people around him that he thinks, you know, these are the most spiritual people. So he brings them around uh, as well. And then everybody else is just, you know, whatever, your parishioners, your attenders, your members, whatever word you want to use to describe it. In reality, if we're thinking about context of the church day here, we're talking about these house churches mostly, mostly small gatherings. Um, It was late in the first century, certainly into the second century, it started to get where you had to be careful. You know, they were kind of secretly meeting later on, maybe not so much in 65 when this was written, but uh, certainly that was coming for the church. And so you had these smaller gatherings, these house type churches, and their understanding, like their assumption... Is not that you were going to come and just be kind of a participant here and we would do what the book of Acts said, you know, the devoted to the apostles' teaching, the, the reading of the word, uh, the breaking of bread, communion, you know, that type of stuff. You are, there was actually this expectation that when you would go out, you then became the minister in your sphere of influence, that you would go out and if you went to your job, back to your family, they may not all be in the house church. That was your role to go and then to share Jesus Christ with them. And if anyone came to know Jesus, it was your job to start discipling them and building into them as well. In fact, the goal was that you would launch another church, maybe another home church if that's the setting, you know, wherever your sphere of influence was. And so you got to understand when, when this reminder that God offers significant roles, you're in one now. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're in a significant role Now, you may not be taking it or I may not be taking it serious, but you're in it. You've got people everywhere in your life that you can share Jesus with. Everywhere in your life that you have the opportunity to start discipling them if they come to know Jesus. So, reminder that God offers significant roles. Here's another reminder, though, that responsibility comes with those significant roles. If you're going to go out and be an example for Jesus Christ and try to share Jesus Christ, then live out Jesus Christ. Live it out. That's what he's saying there, that this responsibility comes. Listen, I grieve every time that I hear of a pastor that falls to some immoral uh, practice. Something. Most often it's something that's been hidden for a long time. And they didn't just show up Sunday morning and say, hey, I've got a confession to make. They're usually caught in it. And when they're caught, they have to share and say it. Now, I'm glad for the caught and many of them are as well because it starts the process of, of forgiveness and healing and repentance and everything that needs to go with it. Um, but I grieve every single time. But at the same time, every single time, I'm actually grateful that that pastor was removed from that position. Now, they, I know how it works. You're, you're taken out and you're there's... Uh, restoration that's offered there's repentance and restoration all that stuff that's offered there's great processes on that the westland church which we are part of has a wonderful restoration plan in that but i grieve every single time and i think sometimes we just forget maybe you and i the responsibility that comes from significant roles significant now does that mean that as a pastor you know i should send less than you and you can send more than me absolutely not you know, it doesn't work that way. Obviously, that would be a cheap understanding of grace. But it does mean that I have the opportunity in my leadership role. You have the opportunity in your leadership role with other people. You have a greater influence for God's kingdom or against God's kingdom. And that's why Judas speaking so strongly into this. The final one there fixed into what I just said. Reminder that being removed is often the best for the church. For somebody to be removed from leadership because of this is often the best. For them to say, I, 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 I acknowledge, I confess, I repent, and then I start the restoration process. Start the healing and mending process. Why? Because I believe the call of you and I, me as a pastor, maybe you to share Christ in your profession, the call is not void. It's not void at all. God wants you to get right back into the call. But there's a place, there's a time of restoration that's needed. I grieve. Whenever a pastor refuses the restoration process, refuses that for whatever reason, because it's absolutely necessary. Listen, God takes serious holiness from roles of influence. He takes it serious. When you see somebody in leadership, any leadership you're in, God takes very seriousness, holiness in that role. I know people can fake it. Pastors can even fake it. But God takes serious that heart, and that strive for holiness, to be like Christ, to be like God. Here's a third one, these uh, divine judgments here. It's to take to those who embrace unrighteousness over God, who embrace unrighteousness. This story uh, I want to share with you is found in Genesis chapter 19, Judges chapter 19. You can read uh, some of these uh, as well. But let me just read it here, and then let's talk about what's really going on. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality or perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Here's the first thing we need to understand is whatever's going on here um, in—he's he's drawing a reference from, from Genesis. He's going to parallel it to what's happening in the church today. Whatever's going on in that church today, he looked— he, that last line, they serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. He's saying there very, very strongly, listen, listen, this is a big deal. This is a really big deal, and it's important, and we got to get it right. And so he's pretty direct on this and what he's talking about here. So let's just look at Sodom and Gomorrah. If you've done any uh, study of, of the town of Sodom and Gomorrah or not, and you've looked at this, you understand that Sodom and Gomorrah was kind of a anything-goes town. We think in terms of sexual immorality, but think broader than that. This is a pretty much anything-goes. Like sometimes you, you think early on in, in American history, the Wild West was kind of a, you know, wild and anything-goes kind of. I mean, that certainly was Sodom and Gomorrah. It was wide open. Any practice, sexual practices, how people treated one another, um, just lawlessness, that was what the town was known for. And so that was a town that was uh, most often to be avoided. As you might suspect, had a very, a very low um, presence of really God-fearing people, though we do find them there. Um, that's a, a greater story to read in the book of Genesis. In fact, sometimes as, as Christians, especially in our current day and age, we like to limit everything we talk about in Sodom and Gomorrah to the topic of homosexuality. Listen, I need you to think much broader than that. I need you to think in terms of this is anything. This is sex with anyone, anytime, any way. Anything goes in Sodom and Gomorrah. They had no understanding of any limitations God was putting on that type of stuff. And it goes pretty far in that. And so here, Jude is actually speaking into the church here. Why? Why would he be speaking into the church Well, if you grew up and you were a a Jewish believer and a follower of the Jewish law, then you had a very narrow, you had, God had a very uh, straight path, right, for sexuality. God said, clear, this is a man and woman, sex in in the context of marriage. Now, there's several verses to pull into that. We don't necessarily have time to work through. So now they are actually, they're actually in Roman-occupied Uh, territory and heavy greek influence in the culture here and those brought in just this wide understanding of sexuality throughout the area throughout the roman empire just wide just wide open so we would be naive to think that was not actually influencing the church as well and it's why we find paul speaking into it peter speaks into it jude here speaks into it They're saying here, look, there are things in our culture that are rampant. They're everywhere. And I need to speak into God's way. That's what he's doing here. But here's what we like to do in our current age. I said there's parallels to today. In our current age, what we like to do sometimes in the contemporary church is limit this all the way down to this issue of homosexuality, forgetting all of these other things that have been influenced the church and that we have ushered into the church ourselves. So I was reading this study. This is from the November of 2019. Barner Research Group put this study on. So it's fairly fresh, November 2019. In the stat world, that's, that's really fresh. And I grew up doing youth ministry. That was my first thing. 18 years old, junior high youth pastor, you know, 20 years old, did a youth pastor high school and middle school, just kept going youth ministry for a while, 16 years. And I remember always early on, maybe as a teen even, hearing this idea that more couples have sex before marriage than don't. So I'm thinking, oh, it's tipped, you know, I don't know, what is it, 51%, 49%, I don't know what the percentage was. But it's tipped in that direction. I remember as a youth pastor, reading some stuff that youth specialties put out, and, and the stats were around two-thirds would have sex before marriage. It's so about two-thirds, like, oh, man. So this Barner Research Group put this out uh, in, in November of 2019, and they came to this conclusion, 97% of married couples, married couples, for, this is like first marriage. Ninety-seven percent of marriage couples have sexual intercourse before marriage. Ninety-seven percent, ninety-nine of a hundred people. This baffling kind of blew my mind. And then, as I thought later about it, I thought, oh, maybe it doesn't blow my mind as much as I thought in the beginning. This would be like what Judas talking about here. This type of mentality has been ushered into the church that it's okay you're going to get married, you love each other, that's part of it. Or, hey, it's okay, God will forgive you. You know, whatever it is. Or we don't put enough limitations and boundaries on our relationships, our physical proximity and those type of things. But whatever it is, 97%. So we would be foolish to think that in in some ways we don't look at our current, present contemporary church setting and say we have ushered in sexual immorality even into our midst here. I was just processing this. The issue of modesty, modesty of dress, I don't care if it's men or women. We've we've bought into this idea with modesty that it's your problem. Your your looking is the problem, not my dressing. And we've bought into that concept even in the church. We've bought into that concept. It's your problem. Don't look, you know? It's not my problem. Modesty. That's, that's an issue we bought into. Pornography is, is one in four men are, are what they call addicted to pornography. One in four. Uh, I'm sure there's others that l- look at it. I don't know what the, the stats are. One in four addicted. And you know I say, man, those men, a bunch of perverts, right? You know, one in ten women are addicted to pornography. Those stats have been on the rise just about every year. In the last couple of years, I've actually had conversations with Christian men who, who are analyzing things that have gone on in our culture, right? And the phrase has been used, well, boys will be boys. We have to understand that. We bought into this sometimes, this concept that that's how it works. And so uh, when we start to think about this, we've got to broaden our understanding. We've got to understand that as Jude is speaking to believers and he's speaking about things that have infiltrated, that have silently, as he said before, have snuck their way into the church, there are areas of sexual morality that have snuck their way into our church. And it's been us that have ushered them in and allowed them to come in. And we've been fearful of the word judgment, so we just think I can't speak against that. Listen, I know the risk. In me standing here even this morning speaking against those. It can be as simple as somebody hearing saying, well, I'm out of there. I won't be back there. And I'm sure Jude was running into the same thing. But that doesn't change that it has impacted our church. The second example is perversion of God's ways. We talked about that last week. That is just taking theology, taking bits and pieces of what we believe, and then you kind of change or you just add on a different ending uh, that, that you would like or just twist it in a certain way, and we often do this to justify uh, our ways, justify something we want to do or want to get done or that we think somebody else should do for us. The list goes on and on. That's the second example, perversion of God's ways. That naturally leads to this third example, and this is the invitation for others to join. That's what we do. We, we can't deny that eventually we don't have influence on other people. And if we allow something into our midst, and we especially allow it our, 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 from our leaders, there will be influence there. Now, let me just pause for a second, because somebody might be sitting here, and what you think you heard was, man, Tom doesn't want anyone in this church that doesn't straight up believe everything, you know, that we believe. Absolutely wrong. In fact, I would really, really hope In the last six or seven years, especially with the the doorway that God has opened in, in my life for ministry outside of this in the fitness and gym world, that you would know clearly, I want everybody to come and be a part of our church. I want everyone to be loved. I don't even care what they believe when they walk into the door, right? What I'm declaring this morning, that for those of us who have declared faith in Jesus Christ, who have said, I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, that we sharpen up what we believe about holiness and what we believe about righteousness. And we say, I'm going to get in line with what God has put forth in his word. Here's the phrase I want to end this point on, and that's flourishing spirituality and unrighteousness. They're not compatible. They just don't go hand in hand. If I want to flourish spiritually, flourish in my faith with Jesus Christ, a life, an unrighteous life, those things cannot be compatible. Now, again, there's this wilderness period where God has delivered you, where we're learning and we're growing and we're, we're, we're hearing new things we had never heard before about what a life in Christ is like. And so there's a bit of, of, of mixing and matching here, not on purpose. It's just God is still delivering you. But there's believers 15, 20 years later in every church they're still struggling standing in the middle. Or they're struggling trying to balance flourishing spiritually with an unrighteous life as well. And when I say unrighteous, don't think that that's in and through everything you do. It's just mixed in there. So here's a takeaway this morning for what we're talking about, what Jude is speaking to us. Here's the first one. Is just simply and bluntly call sin what it is. Like look in your life and call sin what it is. If there's any way you've been justifying Unrighteousness in any form, then call it what it is. Like, like nobody here is going to say, "Oh man, get out of here; we never going to see you again." No, we, I mean we love you. In fact, we want you to share so that we can walk through the path, loving you and walk with you the whole way. Why? Because God has a beautiful calling on your life. We want to see. We want to be a part of seeing you get there. Call sin what it is. The second one is recognize the life it cost you. Like, understanding that sin always cost us something. And guess what? Sin always costs the church something, too. In fact, I think right now, when we think about the reputation of the church in our world, it is not because our world has shifted further away from God. It is because Christians have shifted further away from being the image of Christ. And so sin always costs the church something, too. The third would be simple, repent then, just repent, just whatever it is, repentance has a form of confession, I say this, and turning around, and moving in the opposite direction, and move forward, just keep moving forward, you don't have to be hampered with this, we've had sermons in the past about you don't have to carry on, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, repent, confess, repent, and move forward, and finally, allow yourself to be held accountable. Rich Mullins uh, wrote a famous song once, and the line was this, we are not as strong as we think we are. Maybe you remember that song uh, way back now. What's he saying there is be held accountable. You're not as strong as you think you are. So have accountability. Accountability is great. I have a friend I call, and we chat about this. We've been best friends since college, right? That's accountability when you find someone that you can share with. Hey, hold me accountable. This is what God spoke to my heart about this. This is what I want to kind of give up. This is what I want to add to my life, whatever it is. So call sin what it is. Recognize the life it costs. Repent, move forward, allow yourself to be held accountable. Let me pray. So Father, thank you for this. Lord, it's a direct word from the book of Jude. Jude is pretty blunt and direct, and I guess he only wrote 25 verses because he just wanted to say, what else do I have to say about this? I was pretty blunt. And Lord, would we hear it? Blunt. Not in the judgmental sense that we're saying we are better than you, and so we speak negative on your life. We n- never want to come at it from that standpoint. But the standpoint of God has more for you. God has more for you. He has more for your life. He has more for your witness to his name. And so we want to call on each other and call on the church to take a life of holiness serious. So, Father, speak to us. And if there be one of those action steps that we need to take, would we do it right now, right here today? Would we confess where we need to confess? Would you make it clear you have something for us that we haven't been able to receive? Lord, would we repent, turn away? And then, Lord, would we say, hey, I'm building the saints around me to be strong in the future. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen.